News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT, the Pete Callender Show here. And uh, it is Tuesday, and so now this is becoming a habit. The Speaker of the House of North Carolina, Tim Moore, joins us. How are you, Mr. Speaker? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Did you have a good uh, Labor Day weekend? Did you do anything you know, newsworthy? Absolutely. You know, just really tried to lay low and just uh, get a little bit of downtime. I hope you did as well. I did. Have you been mowing? I know this is not uh, of, of relevance, but have you been mowing any other people's lawns recently? I remember. I, you know what? <laughs> not only have I not know, mowed anyone else's lawn, I haven't even mowed my own. Yeah, but... I decided to let somebody else do it. So it's the best 40 bucks a week I spend. Right. right <laughs> uh, well, so let's, let's talk a little bit about... Um, Emergency management and uh, the way the governor has been performing over the last 18 months. And I think a lot of people tend to, and I think they want to do this on purpose, to confuse. They think Governor Cooper has done a fantastic job in managing the COVID crisis and the pandemic and all. Um, but the legislature would like to change the Emergency Management Act. And that, I think, is a is a distinct, different question than whether or not you agree with the way Cooper has handled the pandemic. Is that fair? Uh, that is certainly very fair. And, and, the, and, and, the, and what, the, you know, what the legislation that uh, we have proposed uh, would do is simply say that for any kind of long-term state of emergency, uh, you know, because you've got to bear in mind the statutes we have in pla- had in place that no one ever predicted COVID. Um, and it was things like hurricanes and tornadoes and these you know, sort of short-term things that would happen. Uh, but that any time you have something that's going to be long-term, something more than, you know, like a couple of weeks or let's say even 30 days, that that the governor has to get approval from the full council of state or at least from a majority of the council of state for, for things. And, and that's just to ensure that no one person has too much power. And, and, and I think that's a good uh, approach to, to doing things. And we've tried that. Of course, he vetoed it. Uh, before, but we have it this time in the budget bill, and of course, uh, Democrats have shown a willingness to vote for it uh, in the budget bill. So uh, that's something that we have now, and and I, and I believe it's a good common sense approach. And this, and, and I've told people this: I would be supporting that legislation, whether you know whether it was uh, Governor Cooper as we have now, or whether Dan Forrest had won as governor. I don't care which party or whomever. No one person, no one governor should have that much power. Uh, in in this state or any other state, so I think it's a great way to do it, and uh, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Was that a um, was that an error in the bill writing or something that that allowed the governor to do what he has done? That that statute that's been in place, oh man, it's it's been there for I guess decades. Yeah, um, and it just I, no one ever really thought about something this long term. I mean, it's. It was basically meant to give the governor the authority to, you know, activate the National Guard to impose uh, curfews and do things that you think of in really in the sense of a natural disaster, um, which is something that makes sense. When when a, when a, you know, a hurricane hits and does damage, the governor needs to be able to deploy resources and to you know, restrict people going in and out and to do things so that he prevent looting and all that sort of thing. I mean. But the fact of where we were with COVID, where you had a governor issuing an executive order saying that churches couldn't meet, uh, you know, shutting down businesses, requiring all these very onerous things was just was just something that no one ever imagined. I mean, the closest thing I ever saw to it was what that, that movie outbreak, you know, where the little monkey ran around and <laughs> Dustin Hoffman was in and all that. But, I mean, that's the closest thing that 
that we've ever dealt with of this in, in real life. So no one really thought about this. Yeah. So, uh, and, and but of course it's been vetoed when we've tried it. But we're going to see where we are this year. And I think I think there's probably a sense of that, that we need to do that now. So you mentioned the budget, and this uh, it's a question I, uh, I I've seen asked. Well, I'll ask you as well. Is it wise to put policy into the budget? If it then gives the governor an excuse or other Democratic lawmakers an excuse to to vote against it, well, it's there's always going to be policy in a budget, and the reality is when you're spending twenty six to twenty eight billion dollars of the taxpayers' hard earned money, that in and of itself is is policy because you are making choices to fund A over B and X over Y and all that, so you are making policy choices implicit in that. So it's uh, uh, it, it's it's just it's just a part of it, but th- we do believe that there are trade offs that can be reached on that to get there. But you know we'll have to see. At the end of the day, uh, to get a budget passed, we're either going to have to have something that's signed into law by the governor, or uh, that enough uh, Democratic members are willing to vote to override. And I, I genuinely hope that we'll get somewhere with with getting somewhere with the governor that he'll sign it. So whether it's included in there as part of the budget, you know, in the final budget, who knows. Um, but so far, it has gotten enough votes, um, if those Democrats would hold, to, yeah. to be able to override a veto. So is there going to be a budget from the legislature? I only ask because it's, uh, it's been kind of – it's been a while. <laughs> well, it has been. It has been. Uh, but, you know, there will be. Uh, there will be a budget, and things are actually moving moving along well now. Uh, and this year has been very unique. We normally have adopted a budget, and we're done by the by the first part of July. Yeah. But this year has been so different in so many ways, of course, with COVID, and then all of this uh, all of this federal money that has to be spent. And we've been very deliberate, Pete, about how we spend it. We just haven't taken it and just you know, thrown money out there and, uh, and, and just wanted to allow too much discretion for it to be wasted. And so we've gone through in a very deliberate process to look at how that money needs to be spent. And that honestly has taken a, a lot of the time. And the other thing that, that folks will be glad to hear is, Part of the debate has been how much of taxes are, go- are we going to reduce and which taxes are we going to cut. Uh, imagine that. Unlike Washington that's trying to raise taxes, we actually in North Carolina will be cutting taxes. And so the d- difference has been, you know, where do we cut, where, where do we make those adjustments? So uh, we're, we're getting to a good spot. I can tell you that the Senate and the House uh, uh, have come to some pretty good agreements on a lot of things, and so now we're getting into some of the – details, but a lot of the big issues that were kind of holding us up last week and the week before have been resolved. So uh, things things are uh, moving in the right direction. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I think we had John just as a ruling came down and you mentioned this. And so uh, this is the State Court of Appeals now has, uh, I guess, given you guys a, a bit of a victory here because it blocked that lower court ruling that would have allowed convicted felons who have finished their they're time behind bars, basically, but they're still on probation uh, or they owe fines. It would have allowed them to register to vote in North Carolina. And uh, so the Court of Appeals has weighed in now and they they've overturned that. Right. So this is a victory for you guys. And you had to what you had to go around the uh, the attorney general, Josh Stein, to get the win. So that that's that is 100 percent accurate. Uh, and, and what the Court of Appeals have done has done so far is that they have granted a stay and they have. They have, they have advised that the ruling from the three-judge panel is not to go into place right now. And you know, we, had, uh, uh, we, had, we had communicated with the attorney general that we had asked them to go ahead and ask for that stay 
because it was time sensitive because the Board of Elections was going to go ahead and start registering these folks like last week. Yeah. Um, and the attorney general said, well, that there wasn't time to do, to request a stay. Procedurally, it wasn't appropriate, and a court could not grant stay. So after we fired the attorney general's office and, and, and retained outside counsel, they filed the motion. And guess what? A stay was granted. <laughs> so it, uh, it, it completely affirmed the position that we had. Um, and, and for those who haven't really followed the issue, the issue that closely, uh, this is a huge what, – what the court did, what the trial court did, in my opinion, is a huge overreach, uh, basically overturning a law that's been in place for, for many, many decades that said when someone is, is a convicted felon in North Carolina that their rights to vote are not restored until they have been released from prison and they've completed all of their probationary sentence. Because what a court will routinely do is if someone, say, sentenced to three years in prison on a felony, they may make that last year subject to you know, they actually pull the two years and then that last year they have to just you know come out and be on probation and prove they're not going to mess up again they're going to comply with the with the judgment and then after that then they're off probation and under the current law once they come off probation and they've you know, paid their debt to society they get their right to vote back but what this court was doing was saying oh no uh even though they haven't finished their sentence they get their vote to, uh, their right to vote back and that's that's ridiculous i mean it's a I believe once someone has paid their debt, right, once they've you know, made whole and paid their debt to society, whatever that is, they ought to get their rights back. But to short-circuit it and say that they shouldn't, number one, that if, if, if folks want to change the law, that's up to the legislature. To right. do. We don't need courts making laws like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is the clearest example of, uh, you know, act, uh, judicial activism that I, I think I've seen, uh, especially at a state level. They just essentially ignored the current law, wrote a law uh, for themselves the way they wanted it to read, and essentially challenged everybody to to, to call them out. And um, I'm glad you guys did. Um, and again, and that's, that's regardless of whether you like the intention behind the law. Like, if you want to get people on probation to register to vote, then change the law. Like, that's how you do right. that. Yeah. Right. You file, file a bill and, and see what happens. See if right. it passes. If it passes, it does. But that's, yeah, that, that wasn't what they did. Uh, so uh, before we let you go here, I should tell people that the reason why I asked if you had been cutting lawns is because you actually did that. You saw some woman, right, needed her lawn cut, and you showed up at her house <laughs> and cut her grass yeah. a couple of years ago. <laughs> so I'm just yeah, curious well, if you still do that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, I, I had I, I, it was a one. I, I was afraid. Yeah, it's a funny story. I, so there was a, a, a lady uh, who was uh, wasn't able to cut her grass. She had. And I was just out campaigning door to door, and I was asking, you know, asking her about, you know, what she's concerned about. She made the comment. She said, "Well, I need to get somebody to cut my cut my grass," and I and I could tell she wasn't in any shape to do it herself. And I said, "Well, I might can take care of that." She's like, "Well, I don't have any money to pay for it." So we just don't worry about that. Well, my plan was, my plan was to get the guy that cuts my grass to go cut it for, <laughs> right? You know, I pay him extra and do that and go. On. But as, as as things worked out, I had been um, that. Uh, a couple of days later, maybe even the next day, I was coming by and I noticed it, and I said, "I'm going to go cut her grass." And uh, it, it turned out to be quite the uh, quite the mission because it was quite high, and yeah. I was using the push more to do it. But uh, but she came home and saw me doing it and took a picture. And I was like, "Look, do not put that out there." She's like, "Why not?" I said, "Because if you do, everybody's going to expect me to show up cutting the grass. Right. That's what this job is." So, <laughs> 
so anyway, but it was we we had some fun with it. It was a nice thing to do. And, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, I, I retired. Uh, I retired shortly thereafter for the grass cutting business. Well, you go out on top, right? You go out with a victory. Right. This way, you're undefeated, and that's it. That's the way to do it. So. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> got to go in for the dunk, right? That's right. All right, speaker two more. Thanks so much for your time, sir. We appreciate it as always. Hey, great to be with you. Take care. All right. So the day after tomorrow, September 9th, it'll be Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m. until 1.30 p.m., Cunningham Recreation. Employees from across the region from Cunningham Recreation are going to join forces at the Salvation Army Center of Hope uh, in Charlotte. They're going to build a brand-new playground there. Both equipment and installation costs have been donated by Cunningham Recreation. It's kind of their jam. It's what they do. They build these things. Um and in addition, uh, the group is refurbishing a picnic area to create a completely refreshed outdoor space for the 250 women and children who temporarily call the Center of Hope home. The Charlotte-based family-owned company Cunningham Recreation has a long history, three generations over 50 years, of providing recreational amenities to communities across 16 states and uh, Salvation Army of Greater Charlotte serving Mecklenburg and Union Counties since 1904. Salvation Army uh, is prepared to meet the needs of the community with services ranging from sheltering programs and services for those experiencing homelessness to and uh, six Salvation Army Boys and Girls Clubs to uh, adult rehabilitation and disaster relief. Anyway, uh, so it's a good cause, good thing that they're doing. They're going to donate this uh, playground equipment. They're going to build it all Thursday. Good on you, Cunningham Recreation. What else we got? This uh, press release. The city of Charlotte has hired the first arts and culture officer. That's what we were missing. That's what we needed. For real. Like, we've had the budget provision, right? Every city project has to have, like, 1% of the budget or something go to public art. Like, they've been doing that for almost 20 years. And I might add, it has led to some hilarious pieces of artwork over the years. Oh yeah. No, for real. Like when I was working in Asheville, I used to tell all the people in Asheville about the hilarious pieces of art that Charlotte bought uh, as part of their project. Like um, what was it? The, the project over at the, uh, at the poop plant, right? The stink factory where they, they, yeah, they got like these like benches or something that they paid some artist for at like a, a sewage treatment facility. Because people go to sewer treatment facilities and they look at artwork. Like, you got to have some art at the poop plant, right? Obviously. Or how about, this one was good, too, the uh, the bridge. Uh, I guess it's over, is it Briar Creek? I guess it's Briar Creek over there uh, in uh, Plaza Midwood area. There's the, the bridge near Thomas Street Tavern and the Penguin sign. The Penguin's gone, but the sign's still there. But now they're going to take the sign down. Anyway, they got the bridge and they put the the artwork over the like the side railing right so it goes up higher and it's i mean it's pretty neat looks it's like all wavy and swirly and stuff and it's meant to represent water and and uh the banks like the the the, the greenery that grows along the water's edge stuff that you would have been able to see had they not put the artwork right in front of your field of vision 
right? So they block the view and they block it with a, an artist representation of the thing that you would have otherwise been able to see. So, I mean, this is just fantastic. Now we're going to have a whole person dedicated to making, I'm assuming, these kinds of fantastic decisions. I, I am, I'm eagerly anticipating these decisions. In all seriousness, congratulations are in order to uh, the new arts and culture officer, Priya Sirkar. She is the city's first arts and culture officer. I don't know if that comes with uh, arrest powers or what, but um, she's the former director of arts for the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation in Miami. So the Knight Foundation. In that role, she oversaw Knight's arts investments in and across the eight cities in which Knight has offices, including Charlotte. So the left-wing foundation art director now will be the city of Charlotte's art director. Um, The Charlotte city manager, Marcus Jones, said Priya brings an exceptional level of knowledge and passion to this position, and that is going to benefit the entire arts community here in Charlotte. Yay, government art, because ain't uh, ain't no more beautiful art than GovCo art. Am I right? Right. Like, you go and you look at these government buildings and you're like, this is really the best art ever. The stuff that's out there on the street, bolted to the sidewalk. That's the stuff. Wasn't there the story, if I'm remembering correctly, the, um, yeah, it was the police academy. When they finished building the police academy and they had a big art exhibit installed right there in the lobby. Uh, and, um, Remember, I don't know, I think they still do. Do they still use the the police badge logo kind of thing? It looks like a hornet's nest, but it's also like in the shape of a badge. And that was the CMPD logo for a long time. I don't know if they still use it. I think they do. But some artist, if I remember correctly, just going off the top of my head here, but if I remember correctly, some artist had um, done sort of like a rendering of that or something, trying to make that kind of a big badge or something. And... They did it with like chicken wire and a bunch of other stuff in there. And like the janitor threw it away. Like <laughs> they thought, <laughs> they thought it was trash after the construction. Well, I mean, had it, the building was like brand new, they were getting ready to open. And then this thing shows up and apparently the person thought it was garbage, like literally garbage. And you know, so I'm assuming we're going to get more stuff like that because government art is so fantastic. Like, oh, how about the trees, the light posts that were trees that were supposed to symbolize the trees? Remember all of that? They, they I think they scrapped all of that. Um, it was part of the arena deal. Remember, like they had this plan where they were going to they were going to have these representations of trees and at a cost of like way more money than a tree would cost. And so the city council was finally like, hey, why don't you just plant some trees instead? So I think that's how we ended up with the trees there. And then they did the, uh, with all the the ra- the textile things, right? Which was kind of, that was also kind of interesting because the um, South Corridor light rail line, you've seen the big Frisbees jammed into the dirt 
the big mud frisbees. They're, you know, they're like 20 feet tall, not 20, maybe 15 feet tall. Yeah, they're like these big discs and they just like, they're, they're like standing up in the ground. Like somebody took some frisbees or something and just like jammed them into the dirt. That's, uh, that's an honorific or whatever to, it's a tribute to our history as a farming community or something. It was like, wait, what? We were like textiles and trade. I mean, Charlotte's history, textiles, trade, then banking. Yes. I mean, you couldn't have stuck like money. You could have lined, you could have put like big coins or something. And then we found out that the artists had actually sold that work as like, they just like relabeled it and sold it to some other town with a different name. This is, this is how I came to, I have a whole theory on this now, this art by explanation. That's what I call it now. Art by explanation. Where you look at something and it doesn't move you. It doesn't speak to you. It doesn't do anything. It's like, what am I even looking at? You got to go up and read the little card to tell you what the person who made it was trying to convey. Because nobody understands what they're trying to convey. So once you read the explanation, then it's like, oh, okay, I can see that. Like, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. More often than not, that's what we're dealing with. I'm looking forward to lots more projects. I mean, the show prep here is limitless. In her new role as the city of Charlotte's first arts and culture officer, Sikhar or Sirkar will convene individual artists and creatives, arts organizations, community members, corporate and nonprofit partners, and elected officials to create a cultural plan for Charlotte. Gotta have a plan. What would we be without a plan, right? Gotta have a plan. Because all good art requires a plan. That's what I've been told. Like, you don't... I have inspiration, moving people, or anything like... Pff, whatever. We need a plan here, people. The cultural plan will take a comprehensive... Oh, thank goodness, it's comprehensive. I was starting to be worried, like, the plan would be too limited. But it'll be a comprehensive plan... And it's going to look at Charlotte's arts, culture, and creative economy and ecosystem. And create a roadmap for future cultural programming, infrastructure, and investment. Cha-ching. That's what this is about. Are we going to get a new bond referendum to support some more artsy things? A key goal of the plan is developing sustainable funding for arts and culture in Charlotte while maximizing the economic impact of this crucial sector. Okay, uh, I'm just, look, I'm just a radio guy. Now, some say what I do is a form of art. I mean, there's not a lot, but there's a couple people, I think, that have probably said something along those lines. But either way, I, I feel like I, I have some artistic ability, even though none of my art proposals are ever accepted. I'm looking forward to the next one that goes out. I've, I've done some of this work. I have, I've, I've submitted, um, uh, you know, for public consumption, some of my ideas for public art in the past, but so I'm looking forward to new opportunities here, but so I'm saying this because I have some bit of experience here. I have some artistic abilities and, um, I have always thought that a sustaining funding for arts and culture, uh, number one, be a good artist. And then number two, get rich people to buy your stuff. That's generally the model. Generally the model. 
I'm not sure taxpayer funding of art is going to make good art. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Monica says in an email, you can send, by the way, you can send an email, Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. Uh, if the art doesn't move you, it doesn't convey its purpose, then it is not art. It failed. Art is the relationship between the creator and the viewer in this case. Interesting. Vincent, welcome to the show. Hello, Vincent. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, listen, my, my son is the only artist that I know of who's figured out how to make money off of art. He's 30 years old. He's a master's uh, degree in business. He's got a BS in English and a minor in art. And he's a tattoo artist. <laughs> Makes lots of money. There you go. No, that's yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Um, good tattoo artists are uh, super, super uh, in demand and profitable. No doubt about it. Good ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do not want a bad tattoo artist. That is one nope. thing in life. No, that's definitely to be avoided. Thank you, Vincent. I appreciate it. Um, so, All right, so I will tell you, I, there was a project that was up. It was at a hotel in Asheville. They had a big blank wall, and they had put it out for bid, and they were like, we want to have a uh, a mural or something, some art piece done on this big empty wall. I can tell you it was the Aloft Hotel. Um, so if you're ever up in Asheville, you can see it's like the side of it. Somebody else won whatever. But I proposed um, there would be, I mean, there was a whole explanation for it too. But when you look at it, some people confused my art with simply my initials. But they didn't realize, like, the circle of the P represented the planet of which we are all, you know, uh, uh, journeying together through space on. Right. And then the line connecting the planet goes on into infinity. That represents time. Right. So like I had, it doesn't matter. Like the whole point was like, I had, I had this art installation all ready to go, but they picked somebody else. It's fine. I'm not bitter about it, but I, I feel like I am going to be able to submit some pretty good works of art under this new, uh, regime, this new comprehensive uh, plan. Sirkar, who is the uh, the new what is this arts and culture officer? Um, her name is Priya Sirkar, and she has twenty years of experience serving communities through philanthropy, nonprofit management, and consulting, and is a tireless champion for the arts. Inclusion and equity, because of course she is. You cannot get a job, particularly in government, if you are not a champion of inclusion and equity. Quote, here we have an opportunity to set the course for the whole cultural future of our city. Well, not way to like rein in the vision here. Um, but and this time, do it in a fair, equitable and sustainable way said Menaj Kesavan, 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 I think is how he pronounces it, founder and executive director of Boom Charlotte. What is Boom Charlotte? I didn't know, so I had to go look them up. They've got a website, boomcharlotte.org, slash about. 
Welcome to Boom, Charlotte's artist-led performance and visual arts showcase of contemporary and experimental works created on the fringes of popular culture. That's what Boom, Charlotte is. I mean, you got to say it like that. It's all capitalized. Just the boom part. So note what, note what he's saying. Here we have an opportunity to set the course for the whole cultural future of our city. So, like, in classic GovCo fashion, going to make a comprehensive plan about culture and arts, and we're going to dictate to you what that is. And this guy apparently is going to be part of the direction of the city, the, the fair, equitable, and sustainable way which is apparently going to be operating on the fringes of popular culture. That's the kind of art we're going to get to see. Aren't we so excited for this? We're going we're gonna to use taxpayer money, of course. I mean, we'll be able to leverage it with corporate donations as well, and I'm sure there are going to be some wealthy benefactors that will, you know, pay the indulgence to keep the woke mob off of their... Uh, front lawn or whatever but um yeah like they'll i mean yeah yeah yeah. i mean that's what you do you 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 give them a bunch of money and then they leave you alone and i suspect they're they're going to have a lot of money to be doing some of this fringy experimental artwork i'm sorry if you would prefer different kind of art (laughs) you just you're just out of luck sorry better move to a different city Having worked with Priya when she was the National Director of Arts at the Knight Foundation, I am so excited that she has been selected to be the first ever arts and culture officer for the city of Charlotte. With her great experience, along with her special insight and understanding of the cultural ecosystem here, I can't think of a better person to lead us at this critical juncture. This is a guy, by the way, who made the city of Charlotte's press release. That's what I'm reading from. That's where all this comes from. It's their press release. So they sought the guy out from, boom, Charlotte. I don't know why. Are there other types of art being created? Or is this the only one? This is the artist-led performance and visual arts showcase of contemporary and experimental works. So if you're not contemporary, if you're more traditional, if you're not experimental... If you're not on the fringe of popular culture, I guess you don't get to be part of boom. You don't get any of the money either, I guess. In addition to overseeing the creation of the cultural plan, Sirkar will serve as the liaison to the Arts and Culture Advisory Board and provide recommendations to inform decision-making. The Arts and Culture Advisory Board is charged with determining the use and allocation of future arts funding. Uh, Who is this? Dave. Hello, Dave. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing okay, Pete. How are you? I'm all right. What's up? Listen, um, I'm not a policy wonk or anything like that, and I know that you're um, more astute. Um, From a citizen's perspective, what practical steps can be taken to kind of make sure that um, arts funding is separate from things like Greenway funding and other things, because they tend to bundle these together and so that something that's very unpopular can get passed. And I'm just wondering what we could do to, is there a referendum? Is there some way that we can make sure that that's always 
funded by a separate um, proposal. No. Uh, you, so first off, like uh, any future council can do whatever they want, you know, with with bond referenda or whatever. Right. Like if you they can they can run another bond and if it passes, it passes. And and look, even in the past when they did arts referenda that didn't pass, they right. went ahead and did them anyway. So. Um, yeah, like they, they put the 1%. I mean, that would be one place to start. You could try to attack the 1% budget allocation in all, uh, in all contracts, uh, for the art budget, but that's a popular provision. Um, other than that, it's going down to city hall during their debates about certain projects. That's when you, you go and you make your voice heard. That's the, it's the only thing I can think of to advise, um, but yeah, especially when they come out with some of the renderings, get a hold of some of the renderings and just, you know, critique them and uh, be honest and be merciless. That's my advice. More advice? Stick around. Brett Winterbull's coming up next. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.